Welcome to Season 2 of Otomentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is Season 2, Episode 10, Working with Your Speech Pathologist. I'm excited to have two guests today, Marie Chate and Liz Quadrado, who are both speech-language pathologists at the University of Colorado. Marie is a PhD and assistant professor who specializes in treatment of voice and upper airway disorders. She's also a podcast aficionado and has provided much advice on my podcasting journey. Liz is a senior instructor and specializes in dysphagia and swallowing disorders. She is a guru with transesophageal prostheses and modified barium swallow studies. Thanks so much for being on the show, Liz and Marie. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. So I wanted to talk to you each about how you chose to be a speech pathologist. Marie, can you tell me about your path to that? Sure. So I was really interested in learning languages in university and then discovered the study of linguistics, which is basically the science of language. So in my linguistics classes, the professors would always talk about speech-language pathology as a career, and a lot of my peers were planning for that career. So then, to be more competitive for those graduate programs in speech-language pathology, I started working in some research labs related to language and speech development, and I quickly discovered that I wanted to be a professor and to teach and do research. And interestingly, both of my parents at some point went down the PhD path, My mom is a physical therapist with a PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics, and so I figured that having kind of a clinical, quote-unquote, backup career was a good idea (laughs) because my father actually went and did his PhD in developmental psychology and quit before he finished his dissertation and went into industry because he decided that he was not interested in an academic career. So the backup plan I thought was a good idea. So I pursued the clinical degree in speech language pathology, and then I continued on for a PhD, all the while kind of knowing that I would work in higher education. But, you know, I specifically did gravitate more toward the medical side. Great. And Liz, what was your path to speech pathology? So I really liked, when I was growing up, all the sciences. I loved all my science classes. I had a lot of great role models in science. And when I actually was in high school and in anatomy class, we had a pediatric dentist come in and talk to us about cleft palates and how uh, that affects pediatric feeding and speech development and included in his talk, he showed us a modified barium swallow study. And that all of that together really piqued my interest and really opened the door to learning more about this career path. And then I had done a lot of different observations in the different areas of speech pathology and just really fell in love with it. It really incorporated a lot of things that I was interested in and things that I felt were my strengths, including curiosity and problem solving, anatomy, physics, just in counseling, working with people. So was there anything that surprised you along the way about speech pathology as a field? For me, yes. I'm always learning as I go about this amazing field. And I think one of the things that I'm still surprised about 
is how much we know and how much we still don't know and don't understand. And although it can sometimes seem like simple mechanics, we all know that anatomy and physiology doesn't always behave the way that the books tell us it does. And I find that fascinating and really energizing and opportunity to explore and seek answers. How about you, Marie? Anything that surprised um, you? That's interesting. My my answer is very different than Liz's because <laughs> I just think about when I started my clinical degree, I actually didn't know that there was such a thing as a voice disorder, which is really funny because I became a voice specialist, with, which is kind of a competitive and coveted area of speech language pathology. Like there are speech language pathologists that come into the field specifically wanting to work with voice. And meanwhile, I was just stumbling on these topics kind of serendipitously. I was also surprised to learn about how speech language pathology is kind of a natural fit with laryngology or with a medical team. I had no idea. And then later learning about how there are a bunch of different voice and swallow and upper airway centers around the country where SLPs and MDs can work side by side as a team. You know, there are certainly other areas of rehab that do the same thing, but I I just didn't realize that this was a thing in, in speech language pathology. And that's a great segue. So can you each tell me about your scope of practice? So Marie, tell me about your scope of practice. Sure. So it's interesting because speech language pathologists are professionals who can engage in various areas of communication and swallowing across the lifespan. So communication and swallowing are really broad terms that encompass a lot of different facets of function. So of course, communication includes speech production and fluency, language, cognition, voice, resonance, and hearing. And then swallowing is of, includes all aspects of swallowing, including feeding. And SLPs are autonomous professionals who are the primary care providers of speech language pathology services, which can include prevention and wellness, screening, assessment, treatment, modalities like augmentative and alternative communication, technology like electrolarynx training, and instrumentation like ultrasound, biofeedback, or laryngoscopy. So my specific area and scope of practice relates to voice and upper airway. And from that standpoint, I am doing all aspects of evaluation, including laryngoscopy, auditory perceptual evaluation of voice, acoustic and aerodynamic, studies of vocal function, and then of course treatment, which relates to kind of behavioral therapy. In previous jobs, I I did a lot of, and I'm sure Liz will talk about what she does. I did a lot of what Liz does related to head and neck cancer and evaluation and treatment of those patients. So, you know, a variety of things. And, you know, just like otolaryngologists, our scope is very broad and we can choose to practice in any of these areas at any time. Our license covers all of these areas. Yeah, because Liz, your scope of practice is quite different, right? Can you talk about that? Yes, it is. So like Marie said, our scope is pretty broad, but you can choose to specialize in different areas or specific areas. So for me, I spent most of my career in medical speech language pathology, working primarily in acute cares and acute care hospitals and clinics. And currently, my duties include both non-instrumental and instrumental evaluations of swallowing. So this would include your clinical bedside evaluation, as well as instrumental exams, which would include fiber optic endoscopic evaluations of swallowing modified barium swallow studies. I know some speech language pathologists will also do pharyngeal manometry to assist with assessing swallow function. 
I also work with our laryngectomized clients on alaryngeal speech and pulmonary cares. I do the preoperative and postoperative education and counseling on changes to speech and swallowing. I also have the privilege of meeting with patients before different types of surgeries that might affect their speech or their swallowing to augment that education and that knowledge in, in the attempt to help them prepare a little bit more comprehensively for surgery and what to expect and hopefully facilitate a more seamless experience through discharge. In addition to that, I do get to provide therapy for various swallowing impairments, and I do get to collaborate with my colleagues on different research projects as well. Nice. So Liz, what do you like the most about your job? I really enjoy the opportunity to problem solve as a team. It's really nice to have a more complete picture of an individual's swallowing complaint or airway complaint or voice complaint when you have more heads together and different perspectives. I think you can feel a little bit more confident in your consensus and your diagnosis and your treatment plan once you have all the different pieces coming together. And I think that gives me the most satisfaction. How about you, Marie? What do you like the most? Surprise, surprise. Very similar to Liz. Um, so uh, I'd say the best part about my job is getting to spend time with other people, whether that's colleagues or patients. I'm a fairly people-oriented person. And as a researcher clinician, I feel like I have the best of both worlds because I get to collaborate on the, both the research side and on the clinical side. I really enjoy the collaborative process like Liz described and being able to kind of spitball and problem solve with colleagues. That's really the best part of the job. What do you like the least, Marie? Probably no big surprise, the, the paperwork and administrative hoops that we all have to go through as uh, medical professionals. I think that a lot of speech language pathologists would complain about feeling undervalued, both financially and as a member of the rehabilitation team. A lot of times people leave out speech language pathology when they're considering rehabilitation. So they'll include things like occupational therapy and physical therapy, but don't necessarily think about the importance of communication. I don't personally feel that in the role that I have, but I certainly know a lot of speech language pathologists that feel that way. What about you, Liz? What's what's your least favorite besides the medical record system, which the is all of our least favorite? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that was clearly my number one response. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have to agree with everything that Marie said. It's that kind of when you feel like you have a certain skill set and you can help, so you see somebody in need and you feel like, oh, I, if I can only you know, address this one issue would make all the difference. And I think a lot of times in various settings, it just kind of gets kind of put by the wayside and you feel like we could, you know, really add to the the patient care experience. Yeah. So I know that you guys work closely with our laryngologists. What does your typical weekly schedule look like? My weekly schedule, I do have some days that are designated specifically for modified brain swallow studies done in their radiology department. I have other assigned days to the head and neck clinic, as well as the laryngology clinic. I also get to see inpatients under the ENT service as needed by the different attendings and residents. And then I'm also essentially available to anybody within the clinic who might have a question or a need for a patient. I think it's pretty cool that a neurotologist or a rhinologist can come down the, the hall and say, hey, do you mind taking a look at, at such and such? And my answer is like always, yes, <laughs> please tell me everything. I, I would love to. 
Great. How about you, Marie? What does your schedule look like? Sure. So, you know, I have a a research side to me. And so in a non-pandemic world, I have a lot of protected research time to write grants and work on IRB protocols, write papers, collect data, that kind of thing. My clinical time is two days in clinic with a laryngologist. And typically what this means for our clinic is a concurrent visit with a patient. And in these clinics, we're always evaluating and creating treatment plans for our voice and upper airway patients together. Um, We see our patients in tandem and develop their treatment plans with them in a collaborative way. And then at various points in the rest of the week, I do individual one-on-one therapy sessions with patients. Um, those typically are, are between about 45 minutes and an hour long, uh, where we essentially work toward functional goals. So this podcast clearly is geared toward otolaryngologists, although you know maybe at some point somebody who wants to be a speech pathologist will find it and stumble across it and use this as inspiration. But in general, what do you think are the key things that an otolaryngologist should know to work with speech pathologists most effectively? Okay. Well, I think that, so I've now worked with otolaryngologists at three different academic institutions. And um, what I have discovered is that we cannot all be experts in everything and that we all benefit from collaboration. So My best interactions with otolaryngologists have been when we're helping each other out and giving each other insight into our mutual patients. It is really helpful to get to know the speech-language pathologists at your institution by face and by name. They are there to help you manage your patients, and by communicating directly, you can also help them. So I am a strong believer in that job satisfaction can come from positive interactions, and I think that that comes from being able to trust and work collaboratively with your team. Absolutely. Yeah. How about you, Liz? No surprise. I I agree with everything that Marie had just said. I think clarity and communication is key to any working relationship, especially one that has so many different moving parts. SLPs are really, really eager to help. And it's really important to have that clear communication, the safe space, being very specific in requests if otolaryngologists have an idea of what type of information they want, then it's important to have that conversation with SLPs just to avoid the need for clarification or time-consuming callbacks and things like that. For example, a lot of times the term swallow study is used for many different tests. And to us, that's a very specific kind of test. So if an otolaryngologist is unsure about what they want to order or something, it's a crazy day and they just want certain information, it can be really helpful just to have that conversation with the SLP, just so that everyone's on the same page, they get the information that they're seeking and the SLPs would love it. It's a positive interaction. Again, it's part of that being helpful and wanting to best serve the collaborative effort. Yeah. And I know that you guys being at the University of Colorado work a lot with our residents. Do you feel like the residents know what you do and what are the things that tend to surprise them that you do on a clinical basis? Yeah, I don't I don't think that the residents know exactly what we do. And I always joke when we're doing the didactics for laryngology that at least on the therapy side it's a little bit of a black box for a lot of people. 
That said, I think that they know from our collaborative interactions in the clinic that we have specific expertise. And sometimes our expertise overlaps with the physicians. And to the extent that we also kind of know what surgical options there are and, you know, how to counsel patients in those areas. So I think a lot of time, like, for example, they might know that we do therapy for people with paradoxical vocal fold motion or vocal cord dysfunction or ILO, whatever you want to call it. And so I've had residents text me with questions about what they can do for a patient that they're seeing and they're consulting on in the ED. I know for sure that Liz has had some of the residents interact with her about patients who have dysphagia as well. Yeah, Liz, tell me more about that. I think that they kind of have a general idea, but maybe they don't realize how much depth of care we do provide with their patients and the amount of time that we do spend with them. For example, this is an exaggerated example, but a true one where we'll spend quite a bit of time with a patient before surgery and a surgery that might involve at least at the very least temporarily interrupting oral communication. And then afterwards, after spending quite a bit of time with them, looking at things like what the patient is concerned about might not be what the physician might be concerned about or think that the patient is concerned about, or that, hey, maybe this patient who is a non-English speaker also doesn't read or write, and that all of the consent forms that maybe, you know, that they just might have to take a little bit of pause or that might affect their the way that they approach the patient afterwards or their next interaction or that maybe there's a social situation that the the surgeon is unaware of that could affect the outcome of the surgery and the prognosis and functional outcome for the patient i think a lot of the residents sometimes they know about the the types of tests but maybe not the limitations or what's involved i think it's really easy to look at imaging and say, this is not great imaging, or this is a bad view or something, but not realizing that, hey, the patient themselves might not have had the best positioning, or it might have been a challenging situation just to get them, you know, to cooperate, or to understand what was going on. So that could be the reason why the answers that they were seeking weren't quite clear. Yeah, absolutely. And I think watching how this has evolved over the years, both of you, and also we have a few other speech pathologists that we work with in the hospital and in the clinics, just seeing how much you bring to that experience for the residents is really valuable. So what do you think increases job satisfaction in that vein? What do you think increases job satisfaction for speech pathologists? Yeah, I think overall, I would say positive interactions with staff and patients. And Ultimately, for us, I think it's, and I I think for surgeons also, just feeling like you're making a difference on an individual level. So feeling like your patients are really benefiting from what you're doing with them, you know, and for us, I always tell patients that I'm here as part of a team and that we will work together to find a solution. And that if I don't ultimately have the solution, I know how to find the solution and that, you know, Patients, I the analogy I use is that you're not floating out in the middle of the ocean on a life raft, like not sure when you're going to find your way home. We're here to help you. So, you know, please use us as resources. Please, we will hook you back in with the medical team as needed. You know, we are not operating solo. And so I think 
that's the satisfaction that I get is feeling like patients feel that, feel that team mentality and really feel that they are dialed in to a treatment plan. You know, my personal kind of soapbox is that a lot of patients don't have a lot of medical literacy. And so part of my counseling process for a lot of them is helping them with that aspect of their care, understanding like, who are these members of the treatment team? What are we trying to accomplish? Why are you having all these tests done? What developments are we looking for? What's our benchmark for success? How are we going to get you to where you want to be? I find personal satisfaction in that. Absolutely. How about you, Liz? I think that what increases job satisfaction in addition to that, the positive work environment, the positive relationships are the opportunities for process improvement as well. And I think that kind of fits in with the collaboration and working and having those open and safe lines of communication both ways. Um, So that way we want to move our patients along and anything that we can call upon to facilitate that is just all the better. I tell residents is one example that my favorite day ever is when the feeding tube comes out. So all of those pieces that come together, I think really make a big difference and improve your satisfaction quality of your job. Yeah, absolutely. So have you ever had an incidence or time when you disagreed with the rest of the care team? So specifically the otolaryngologist that you're working with and, and how did you handle that? I wouldn't say that I've had instances of disagreement. I think it's been more of a having a different perspective. For example, if we've evaluated somebody separately or have had a different experience with a patient and we're looking with a different lens at the case, I think once we've come together, which I love that this model allows us to to come together and plan together, then by sharing those different perspectives, we've been able to have that aha moment and come to a consensus where we're both saying, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, I see where you're coming from, from that perspective, and then can come to a, a unified plan. Absolutely. How about you, Marie? Yeah. So I think this does happen occasionally between myself and my laryngology or general otolaryngology colleagues. But I hear stories about it happening all the time outside of academic practice, disagreements, that is. And I think, you know, typically disagreements will relate to timing of assessment or intervention or recommendations for types of intervention. So, you know, I hear from colleagues outside of academic laryngology that they feel like they're being dictated to, for example, by a physician in terms of what type of therapy or what type of treatment they should be providing. And my laryngology partners would tell you that I'm a pretty opinionated SLP, Um, (laughs) but I'm also flexible and can be swayed. So, My personal style of conflict resolution is to engage in collaborative discussion. So I ask a lot of like, what if, or what do you think about types of questions? And what I tell trainees is that otolaryngologists are just people too. And that just like the rest of us, they grow when they hear an alternative viewpoint. And I think it's really difficult for a lot of SLPs because there's frequently an unequal power dynamic between MDs and allied health. And, you know, for one, SLP is a two-year degree, and you can be as young as 23 or 24 years old when you first start your fellowship training. And this is in comparison to otolaryngologists who are typically at least 30 when they finish. SLP is also majority women, whereas otolaryngology is the opposite. And so I, you know, I have to kind of, as I'm mentoring new 
SLPs, I have to remind them that we are all here to learn. We're all here to understand other people's viewpoints and that not everybody has all the answers and that it's okay to question a treatment plan or question the journey of a patient to bring some clarity to the picture and to help ultimately to help your patient because that's what we're here for. Yeah. And I think that's the really nice part that I've seen over the years is just that collaboration. And I've learned so much from both of you, even in the you know, limited interactions that we have since you interact a lot more with the head and neck and laryngology team. So yeah, I appreciate that. So would you do it again? Would If you had to become a speech pathologist again, if you had to do the training again, would you choose the same career path? I think I would. I really enjoy the opportunity to be curious, to problem solve, feeling part of a team, working with people, working broad spectrum of people and working towards something that is bigger than any one individual part. How about you, Marie? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything else that I'd rather do. I mean, and again, as a, as a person with a PhD, I also get to do the research side of things. And so that's, you know, that was really my ultimate goal. And so I, you know, I get to spend time in the clinic. I get to do research. I get to collaborate. I feel like I kind of get the best of all worlds in terms of how I function personally. I know, you know, at some point in time, it was recommended to me that I consider going to medical school. That was before I I went and did my master's in speech pathology. And quite honestly, like I, I get it. Like, I think there are some aspects of my personality that might lean in that direction, you know, being a little bit um, type A, so to speak, and uh, that kind of thing. But that said, I still, I feel like I get to be immersed in that world, but not have to do the duties of that job, which are complicated in their own way. And so, yeah, sure, I would absolutely choose to be a speech-language pathologist again. I feel like it offers a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of long-term growth that can come out of it. And I really like my colleagues. Great. Is there anything else that either of you want to add? Sure. I will plug the concept of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary practice. You know, I think that there are many academic medical centers and also some private practices that do operate with a team approach. Within the private practices, a lot of times speech pathologists who are out in the community are brought in for a day or, or a couple days a week to work toward a set evaluation and treatment of voice and upper airway patients. And I think it's beneficial to the patients. It's beneficial to the team. The outcomes are better. It's more cost effective. And I, that's been demonstrated in a lot of research articles. And so I, you know, those of you who are, you know, planning to practice, whether it's general otolaryngology, laryngology, head and neck cancer, you know, absolutely consider adding a speech pathologist to your team and make them an equal team member. Absolutely. How about you, Liz? Just to add to that, when you are working with somebody on the speech language pathology team, consider involving them early on because the earlier, the better in terms of that allows better rapport with the patient, can anticipate any problems and that could be coming up. And they'll just, like Marie said, it takes a village. And if an otolaryngologist is feeling a little weighed down with a lot of different aspects of patient care, just remember that to reach out that we're here and we can certainly bear some of that burden and work with your patient and get a more positive experience. 
And I'll add to that that I also tell patients that we on the SLP side have the benefit of time that a lot of times MDs don't have. And, you know, so spending 45 minutes or an hour with an individual at a time is a great way to offload some of their concerns. And then we can, in a more packaged way, relay that back to the the medical, the physician team. And so, yeah, involve us early, use us in the way that we were designed to be used. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're certainly a commodity and have a skill set that is valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate both of you, both clinically and for doing this. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Wishing you success and joy. Mm-hmm.